I'm very happy to uh, be here with Ed tonight, uh, uh, giving you a chance to hear of, of one practitioner's experience with meditation, how it relates to his experience in the world. I've, I've known Ed here at Spirit Rock for some time as he's come to various retreats, and we, we've worked together on retreats before, and it's, it's always interesting to see how the mindfulness of the Dhamma shows up in daily life. Just one point about the sati, the mindfulness of the Dhamma, it is samasati, wise mindfulness. Wise mindfulness. It has an ethical component and it has an intentional component. So there's sila, ethics to it, and an intention of non-harming. The, 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 the samasati, the mindfulness of the Buddha, is part of the Eightfold Path. So it's, uh, it's very distinct what was being taught. And Ed's interest in this, and his, he's had a very strong home practice. And so it'll be, it'll be uh, a, a, I think, a retreat for everyone here, a treat for everyone here to hear about how this, uh, how this has unfolded in his life. So Ed, welcome, and please. Thank you, Philip. Can you hear me? Yes. OK, good. Um, uh, I, what I'd like to do is actually start with an unusual um, um, personal uh, event that happened to me um, at a time when I got very lost. When I say unusual, is um, I, I had been working for 20 years on trying to make the first computer animated movie. And in 1995, with Toy Story, it came out and we went public. Um, so at that point in time, uh, while there was this exuberance, which lasted for a week or two with being successful, and we went public as a company, and uh, was working with uh, Steve Jobs and John Lasseter, after that, I felt lost. And, um, and I recognized that the reason I felt lost was that I had just achieved this goal. This had been the framework of my life for 20 years. And now on having achieved the goal, I couldn't do the first film anymore. Um, and I didn't want to repeat myself. And while there were a lot of things going on in my life, there was certainly plenty to do and there was the excitement of having a, building a studio, um, uh, there was this feeling of discomfort. Um, there was also another question that I had at the time. Um, and the question was, that I asked of myself, was how much of this was me? Now, I knew that there were a lot of people that were involved in it, and, and there were the obvious people, John and Steve, but in fact there were a lot of people that were engaged. So I can fully acknowledge that they were part of what we had accomplished. But at the same time, there was that thing inside of me of how much of it's me. So during this next year, so I'm, so I'm kind of lost, um, all busy, um, I was thinking about the puzzles along the way. And there were a whole number of puzzles um, that I had observed, and I just didn't know the answers to them. One of them was that I could frequently see groups that would become very successful. They had creative people, they had uh, uh, a lot of, of good relations in the world. They did some fairly amazing things. They were part of building the infrastructure of Silicon Valley. Um, and then they would do something pretty dumb. And I would say dumb, and like at the time it, it, it was dumb. And it was a puzzling thing to me because it felt like there was some kind of, of, uh, of delusion that was going on. And there was certainly a lack of introspection. And at the time, I remember thinking, if we're ever successful, and we weren't when I was thinking this, but if we were, would I also do something stupid? And would I become deluded? Um, and I had to assume, <clears throat> and I did assume, that the answer was yes. 
that I was going to miss something. Um, by the end of the year, uh, I realized that, in fact, what the next framework needed to be was to think about how to make a sustainable creative culture. I also realized at the end of the year that the question about how much of it was me was an irrelevant question. And the only reason I bring it up is that I can now see when a lot of the people are successful that they have asked that same question. They almost never admit it, but they do ask it and frequently come up with the wrong answer. So at this point, it was now a matter of figuring out, okay, how do we make it so that the culture is sustainable and that we adapt to, uh, to change and, and whatever is going on? How do we learn? And how do we get our process right? As how do we figure out how to do what we need to do to continue to make films that touch world culture in a positive way? So this was a sort of foundational precept, precept <clears throat> was could we have a positive effect in the world? And going through this period of time, <clears throat> um, uh, we did learn a lot. I learned a lot. Um, and I, but I'm still trying to figure it out. Because one, one thing I found was that while we were trying to figure out, the notion that somehow there was a right way actually began to evaporate. Um, that I began to think that there actually wasn't a right way. There was our continuing to pr pursue something, but there wasn't a correct way of making films, in spite of the fact that everybody there kept asking for it. It's like, let's, let's just do this one right. Um, and what we found was that we kept making mistakes and we kept uh, failing at various things, and it never went away. But on the other hand, because we held to this, this principle of what we're trying to produce is more important than how we got there, um, that we, we continued to make films that did well. And then about eight years ago, two important things happened in my life. One of them was um, my wife decided that she wanted me to go on a silent retreat. Now, I had never meditated in my life. <clears throat> so she bought a, 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 a thing for me to go. This is to uh, Shambhala Mountain Center in Colorado. And, uh, and it said people at all levels are welcome, including people who are just beginning meditators. So we get there, and there are 70 people. I'm the only person who's never meditated. <laughs> and I almost flunked out. Um, and, and I said so in my interview about three days in, but somehow just saying so actually calmed me down. And the terminology um, that I was hearing that, that comes out of the Buddhist tradition was pretty alien to me. Um, and some of it felt odd. Um, but by the end of the week, and I, I did stick it out, I thought, okay, there's, there is definitely something here because they're talking about the things that I've been wrestling with for many, many years. Um, about the fact that everything changes all the time. And while I knew, and almost everybody knows everything changes all the time, very few people actually connect the dots about what it means to say that things change all the time. Um, and I had already figured out, as, as many do, that what it means to be interconnected. Um, but there was something about the depth of it and the, the hiddenness of it, which actually began to really hit me then and realize, oh, here's a community that has thought about this deeply for a very long time. So I believe that this was worthy not only of pursuing um, uh, at, at a personal level, but also trying to incorporate into my life because I'm dealing with people who have uh, excellent intentions and want to do well. And what are the implications for a group and for how it interacts and, and for the creativity of the people that are there? The other event that happened around there was that um, Disney acquired Pixar. And, uh, 
we were in this rather remarkable situation where we had one very healthy group uh, at Pixar, and then down at Disney we had a group which was demoralized. They hadn't made a good film in years. Um, and uh, they welcomed us with open arms. And we decided to keep them entirely separate. Um, and f for me, the, the, the personal challenge was, okay, how do I think about this group and their change and their creativity? And at the same time, how do I think about what happens in my life? Um, because I, the one thing I believe and still believe to this day, there are many things that I can't see. So how do I address the things that, that uh, I can't see? So we worked with that group and we applied the principles that we had developed over the years and, um, uh, and we turned them around. Uh, and as I, as I mentioned, we kept them entirely separate. Um, there was no interchange other than the fact that John and I went back and forth uh, to try to make it into a healthy group. And it was uh, two and a half years ago when I thought, okay, now I need to try to clarify it. Um, I'd been reading a lot, trying to understand it, trying to figure out the, the strange terminology. Um, but making progress. I started to work with Philip to get a deeper understanding. Um, and there were a few principles that, that did come out, having to do with uh, introspection and mindfulness. Uh, actually, the, one of my first thoughts about mindfulness came from when I was a child. It wasn't that I thought about it then, but the incident happened when I was a child. And that is, I grew up where my, uh, my two idols out in the world were Walt Disney and Albert Einstein. Um, these were the iconic figures of the 50s when I was growing up. Um, and um, I wanted to be an animator, so all through high school I wanted to be uh, an artist and train and watched everything and learned everything I could. And, but upon graduating from high school, I realized I didn't know how to get to the next step. So when I went to college, I switched over into physics. And over the years, I've told this story, um, that I made that switch. And usually there's a response from the audience. Um, and, uh, and after a while, I began to thought, well, you know, I, I know everybody thinks it's incongruous to make the switch from art to physics. But the question to ask is, why is it incongruous? Because they're both based deeply on the skills of observation and of seeing what's going on. And I felt like, well, they're, they're actually not only relatable, but I think that that's true in almost all professions. It's one of the reasons why I find it disturbing that art programs are cut in schools because people think that they're teaching people how to draw, when what they're really doing is they're teaching people how to see. And that incongruity exists across our society. And, and it feels like even when people talk about mindfulness, they're talking about sort of like the effect afterwards, rather than sort of the principles of seeing and observing what's, what's going on. Um, the other incident which is related to this was um, in watching these other companies, but, but also watching Disney when they were very successful. So this one, Disney made Little Mermaid, um, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and Lion King. So these were four films that had a major influence in, in culture. And then they went downhill. But what I found, since I knew the people there, is there was no introspection that somehow achieving the goal or, or achieving the success itself told them everything they needed to know, namely that what they were doing was right and didn't need to be introspective. And, and my learning when I started to meditate was that, which was the surprise because I didn't know it, was that looking inwards is a fundamentally different kind of act than looking outwards. Um, and then I began to think of in terms, okay, of the groups, because most groups are outward facing. You know, they've got either outward facing to other people in the group or 
out into the world as we interact with the world. Um, And that introspection is not outward looking inward. (laughs) It's actually a different kind of activity, and it has a different feel to it. Um, And that, that was my personal experience. And then feeling that looking inward was a different kind of activity than looking outwards, that there's also a part which is integrating the two. So in my mind, it became, okay, so there's attention paid towards um, mindfulness and focus, which is something that I learn. And then there are the ethics, there are the things we do out in the world and how we interact with the world. And then there's a part of life which is dedicated to figuring out how they fit together. Um, so, the, the, so these are my thoughts trying to go through to understand what this means and what the implications are. Now, the, the other place I should go, and it's, I don't know how far we're into this, so, <laughs> uh, but, but I want to talk a little bit about a couple of the principles we learned along the way. and One of them has to do with uh, uh, failure and mistakes. Um, because this is a difficult one for people because we're in a world where we have all kinds of failures and see them and we make all kinds of mistakes. And we, uh, and, and for me, what happens is, is that we've got two different problems which get conflated together. Um, that is, there's, a, there's an intellectual meaning of failure, which is the one that we all know is true, and that is we fail and we try things and they don't work out and we learn from it. And, we, and, and that learning propels us forward. And we need those failures to move forward. But there, there's another meaning of failure, and it's the one we learned in, in school, which is that if you failed, you were screwing up, or you didn't work hard, or you were dumb, or something like that. Um, and there's also the failure we, we see in the world, whereas if a politician or a businessman makes a mistake, then it's used as a bludgeon. So there's an aura of danger around failure. Um, and, but they're inside of us emotionally. And w- one of the, the things we've tried to work on is how do we actually take the intellectual meaning of it and, 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 and realize the emotional part is there, but still realize that we will fail at certain things and we will make mistakes. And it's a hard concept because of the emotional connection that's in there. And, and so what it means that in an environment is a conscious effort to make it safe for people to make mistakes. Now, this, this sounds good, but it's hard. And, and, and again, even the notion of mistakes is one that's hard for people because we've got the, the one kind of thing of like, well, of course we make mistakes in life, and that's, that's the intellectual one, we get that. But on the other hand, there are certain industries where there's a very clear concept of zero errors and zero mistakes, which is desirable. So the aircraft industry being one of them, right? Like, you get it, I get it, they get it. We want that. And there's some certain places where zero mistakes is not meaningful. Uh, Zero mistakes in terms of our interactions with other people, with spouses and with children, is not a meaningful concept. It is meaningful to say that if you make too many mistakes, then you're screwing up. All right, we, and we know that. You know, if we if we do too many things that are harmful, that's bad. Um, but zero actually is sort of a weird goal. It doesn't even mean anything. It doesn't mean anything in education. So where is the the right place to be between zero and too many? And these are really fuzzy, hard things to deal with. Uh, and, and for me, it's like, okay, this is where introspection and thinking about it and, and paying attention to it does make a difference. And it isn't that we make it crystal clear. It's that in the middle where the interesting problems are, it's not crystal clear. And that's the direction we should be facing. So we never get to the clarity. We're always going through the the, the, the mush of life, and there's always something there in, in, in front of us. Um, so I could keep on chatting, but maybe at some point 
you could direct me in a, in a question. Yeah, we'll just we'll hold that for a moment. So um, uh, thank you for that. And just to point out a couple of things. Well, first of all, just as a background, when Ed and I met, uh, it's not so much known here at Spirit Rock, but I had spent 20 years as a media entrepreneur myself in the magazine world. I'd been uh, had my own company for the first part of that and the last number of years I was editor-in-chief and CEO of Esquire magazine and I had uh, taken all of my spiritual practice, all of my inward looking, to use Ed's word with this, and treated my work day as a practice. So when I got up in the morning what the first thing I did was remember my intention, which was to treat the day as practice. That was my orientation. And it was the first few years at Esquire were very scary days. So that was, it was hard not to go into a panic around that because Esquire uh, was able to uh, take control of the magazine because it had fallen on hard times and I was having to do a turnaround. And in the magazine business, you almost never succeed in a turnaround. Once it starts going down, there's so many forces against you, it's almost impossible. And so I was very scared about that. It was like I'd wake up with a certain anxiety. Ah, but my intention is to treat this as practice. So in that sense, it doesn't matter whether it works or not. What matters is the sincerity of my effort aligned with my values. And so like with Ed and in his experience, it was knowing what I was about. And then when I would go down, this was all in Manhattan, when I'd go down to Two Park Avenue and go up on the elevators, I would chant on the elevator going up as part of my practice. And occasionally someone would have pushed a, a button on another floor when someone was getting on, like a, I was on the 32nd floor, so like on the 18th floor suddenly the door would open and here's this strange thing coming out of the elevator, this man standing there chanting in some foreign tongue. And then in the course of the day, my decisions were my practice. And so this is yet another way of going through this. So now fast forward to Spirit Rock today. One of the things we have at Spirit Rock is a series of operating principles which you can go online and read. This is true, Michelle, that they're online. And there are six operating principles uh, having to do with everything from our commitment to diversity to our commitment to, uh, to transparency. And one of those is being a learning community. So every, every uh, uh, aspect of our community we have, we have uh, done trainings in being a learning community uh, with, with the staff, with the, the management at Spirit Rock, with all the teachers. We treat, we treat it all as being a learning community. And a learning community has a, 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 a very important value, and that is that you don't get punished for mistakes. The only way you can be a learning community is have trust. To have trust, this, this sense of interconnection that Ed was describing in this feeling. To have trust involves having an inner experience, an inner orientation, as well as the regular outer orientation. It takes a lot of building of community to have trust. It's very hard. In, in my own situation as an entrepreneur, I once succeeded in creating a culture of trust that allowed for what I would consider to be an amazing learning community. And in the other, I never felt as though I succeeded. I could not create the conditions in the time I had under the circumstances that I took over to have the kind of uh, learning community that I had seen was so important. So here at Spirit Rock, our attitude is not on the emphasis of mistakes, but on the failure to learn from mistakes. So when we think something is wrong here at Spirit Rock, is when we fail to learn from our mistakes. And then someone needs to do more introspection as opposed to you know, looking outward, but just, what is my pattern of mistakes? Why is this happening? And, and if we are being compassionate in our mindfulness towards ourselves, then we can feel safe in making mistakes. Because we, we want to learn, each of us individually, and then in a community. Is it a safe community? Is there compassionate mindfulness 
within our working group that allows us to, to say, oh, I blew that. And here's what I'm thinking that we did wrong or I did wrong. What do you think? What do you think about this? And we, we are working always with new ways to do this. I was just teaching a retreat. And one of the things that we did was in, in this retreat, we would, we would say things that we liked about a particular Dharma talk. And then well, one thing that might have been improved or that we didn't understand. And then another one, and this is a big part of our learning community here at Spirit Rock versus, versus Pixar, where it's a, a, a very different kind of organization, we do what's called post-mortem. So in, if when we've completed a retreat or completed a project at Spirit Rock, we're interested in what went well and what did not go well and why. So we're as interested in looking at the things that worked and say, well, so... This worked, but why did it work? And how could it have worked better? And like, who needs to know what we learned from what worked? And the same with what doesn't work. Why didn't it work? Not who's to blame, but what occurred, what, what, what didn't come together that didn't allow for this kind of working. And then, and then who needs to know that in the larger community? This, as Michelle can attest, is a very slow process of allowing this to be an entire culture experience. It's hard. A key role in this is not just the mindfulness, but this mindfulness of the Buddha. The intentionality of the Eightfold Path fits so closely, it's joined at the hip with the mindfulness. So mindfulness, sati, has this uh, association with remembering. Smirti, this, this idea of remembering. What are we remembering? We're remembering our intention. And what among uh, things are our intention? Our intention to be mindful. Our intention to have a compassionate mindfulness. Our intention not to cause harm with our actions. Our intention towards kindness in a Buddhist view of the world. It might be different in, in relation to what would be the intention within your family unit or within your own way of relating to yourself or in a, any sort of a work environment. There can be lots of different uh, values that become so strong that they become a central intention in your life. So as, uh, as Red, Ed's gone through his experience at Pixar, he is reporting an inward looking and an outward looking that is very much in line with the Dhamma in this way. How do we, how do we learn? How do we stay attending another aspect of mindfulness? It's, it's, it's Sati sometimes translated as standing near. My teacher, the Venerable Ajahn Sumedho, refers to it as standing under. Standing under. In the First Noble Truth, the statement is that there is dukkha, that there is this, uh, this suffering, this stress, this unreliability, this unsatisfactoriness, this bewilderment, this confusion that is interwoven into all of life. Every process in the creative process that, uh, that Pixar is involved in in all the movies, there's always dukkha. There's always stress. There's always dissatisfaction. There's always mistakes. There's always not knowing. Does anyone here in this room have a life that's separated from dukkha? We're all very interested if it is, because we want to sit at your feet and learn. So the, the, the practice that we're offering here at Spirit Rock is not how to be perfect, even though we have what are called paramis, these uh, perfections, or the word I like, are attainments, where we're slowly letting loose of our, our greed and hatred and delusion in a way that yields patience and generosity and resolve, all very useful characteristics in daily life. There's 10 of them in, in the Theravadan tradition, 10 of these, these attainments. But the understanding is that the orientation is to being in this moment as it is, being willing to stay present for this moment, just as it is, and to know it as it is. That's why the first noble truth that there is dukkha is actually noble. It's actually noble. It takes courage 
caring, a great deal of endurance to stay present for the dukkha in our lives. Whether it's in the creative process, any other aspect of the work process, or in dealing with your family or dealing with yourself. I've come more and more to understand that the Four Noble Truths would be better translated as the Four Ennobling Truths. It's this ongoing process of being ennoble and being able to stay present, which is the first noble truth, letting loose of the cause of our suffering, the clinging, the attachment, the grasping, the tanha, the thirst. That's the second noble truth. When we can let loose of our attachment, our attachment to be right, our attachment to not have people criticize us, that's ennobling when we can let loose of whatever we are clinging to in that way, that attachment. And so as we, as we treat our practice in this larger form, then we see that daily life is just as rich a place for practice to offer us the fruit of practice as is coming on retreat. That all of life really represents practice when we stop being over on the results, grasping after the results. When we're back here and how do we relate to this moment? How do we relate to this moment? How do we relate to that moment? That that is our practice and it is ennobling. And the Eightfold Path of the Dharma, the Fourth Noble Truth, is, is simply a way of doing that from wise understanding to understanding what matters, that's this cultivation of wisdom, to both in a mundane way and a full liberation way, to wise intention, to right, right livelihood and right speech and so forth, and then into the mindfulness and into the concentration and so forth, the right effort. So we start to develop a very nuanced way of relating to ourselves. And I was going to then Ed, ask you just a couple questions to talk about how you at Pixar have tried to create your own learning community when you've had various kinds of difficulties and, and the various things you've done like that. Well, we, we do use postmortems all the time. <laughs> uh, but with every one of them, uh, try to think about the, the way we react as humans even when we're trying to learn. Because almost all the words we use are they almost seem obvious, like you should be honest, you should trust each other. Um, so all, all those surface things are true, but the reality of what we do is frequently different than that. So we have postmortem as an example where we, I remember the first one we had, it was fantastic and everybody loved it and learned a lot from it. It was very important to us. The next we had one wasn't as good and then the one after that wasn't very good at all. And I realized what was happening <clears throat> was that, um, the, the, that a lot of people perceive of the process of trying to pull out the difficult learnings um, was getting in the, in the way. It's kind of painful for people to do that. So they would some, sometimes be averse to it. So they would try to turn it into another meeting where they could pat each other on the back. So having realized that, I thought, okay, so what we have to do is provide some balance because there is this emotional need to get this positive reinforcement. So we would try to balance it and say, come up with the top five things that you would do again or that you thought was right, good decision, and the top five things that you wouldn't do again that you, you think uh, we, we could do a better way. So by providing a balance, we then got them back to being very good again. But I'd have to say over the history they've gone kind of up and down because what happens is as soon as you figure out how to do it then somebody subconsciously games it so their group or they look good in it. Well, okay, well, okay, I don't think you get around that so that's always going to happen. So, so we have to try to do that in, in, as a learning situation. Now the other thing we have is we have something called the brain trust. Now, brain trust usually means a collection of your smart people that get together and talk about things. But um, we have a, 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 a group that's pretty remarkable in their candor, in their honesty with each other. And uh, when we had to figure out why it was working, <clears throat> because frankly, it worked 
because of the natural impetus of the people we started off with. So it was our luck that they could get together and be honest and candid with each other. And that really gave us a, a boost. But it was also a little deceptive because we thought, oh, if we pick people like that, they're going to they're gonna come in and they're going to do the same thing. So as we tried it with a different group, it was a failure. So the question, what's the difference between the two groups? Why was one successful and one wasn't successful? And so we went through a period of years trying to figure this out as, as this group grew and people were added to it. And we realized that one of the elements was that the group could have no authority. That is, we have a director of a film, but the group could not tell the director what to do because giving them authority put the director into a defensive posture, entering into a discussion. Um, but then there were other psychological things that get in the way. It's like people like to, like to impress others, uh, or they don't want to embarrass themselves, or they don't want to embarrass somebody else. So these are frequently subconscious things that go on in a group, which meant that actually managing this group meant not at, at, at some level, not participating in the discussion, some of us actually had to step back and look at the interaction of the group. That is, were, they, were the subconscious going, uh, things going on? Because if you're in the discussion, sometimes you get lost in the discussion. And what we needed to do was to separate and actually e examine it. And over our history, we've had remarkably good success with this, but I will say there have been times when the group melted down. It didn't work. And there are other times when it was magic. And the magic happens when everybody is focused on the issue and the problem and not on each other or how they look or, or on themselves. And we can't mandate it, can't tell it to happen. All you can do is try to, try to set up the environment. And, and I would say in general, um, in, in, in all these environments, we, we are... We're engaged in something creative, whether it's making the film or any other problem. Uh, and I define creativity just to be problem solving, really. It's a very general definition. Um, and in order to enable people, one has to, one has to pay attention to those other dynamics that are going on that get in the way. And again, it's where I come back to the introspection. Like every once in a while, the group has to change modes, talk about how they're doing, how they're interacting with each other, um, and then also reaffirming what the actual values are. Because it's very easy to get so caught up in the process that the process of doing the job actually replaces the original goals. And they don't, people don't know that. And, and, and this is what happened at, at Disney when we were there, is that they weren't introspective, and making the process happen right and go smoothly and be economical and so forth actually became the goal, and they didn't know it. And, and the reason was, the, it's like the founders, like the original people had moved on, so they take the most organized people and they put them in charge, and they bring their values, and they apply it to everything, and they lose their balance. As an organization. It became about the process, like getting it right. So when we arrived, everything was about getting the process of making the, the film right. And so we had to go through this step and say, no, actually, your purpose is to communicate emotions to people in the world. We are storytellers, all of us. It's a way that we learn with each other. And if that becomes our the thing that we do, then the, uh, the, the process is less important. We can't let the, the, the goal somehow get flipped. So we, we try to teach them this, and then of course we talked about the trust, and trust is one of those things which is easy to talk about, because they all nod their heads, yes, we should trust each other. The truth is it took us two years, because um, while they all agreed in principle, they had to go through problems and failures together and stay together 
to realize that they did trust each other. And it didn't happen overnight. But by going through that process, by the, by the two years, they did trust each other. And it wasn't just time, it, was, it, it had to be the mistakes along the way. This, this was the learning experience. Um, they, they did some things which were pretty screwy and some things that were embarrassing, like they were crises. But uh, by going through the crises, in fact, they're the kinds of crises you can't manufacture, it's just like when they happen, then, then you leap and say, okay, this is now our learning experience. Um, and by learning from this, they became a better group. Um, and then, we, we, and because there are only two of us to begin with, and <laughs> there are a bunch of them, we could just get a small group to begin with to understand the principles. And once they understood the principles, then the people around who were sitting there wondering what's going on, they would learn from that, and then they began to trust each other. So that period, period took four years. So it was four years before it spread out amongst the 800 people where they all felt like they had each other's backs, even though they would all say they should trust each other on the very first day. That's how long it took to learn. Either that or I'm a slow yeah. teacher. <laughs> so um, uh, here at Spirit Rock, to follow that along, mm -hmm. we have, as again, one of our central operating principles is that all governance is Dharma practice. So when we come together for any kind of governance, we are to treat it first as practice rather than as outcome. Do you see the difference? So, yes, we've got to decide about who gets such and such job or what are we doing with a certain building or whatever it may be. But the, the first point is that we remember we're doing, we're doing Dharma practice. We're living our values here and now. The Dharma is immediate. It's, it's the invitation is here and now. Like in the, uh, in the guided meditation, I was saying here, here. It's immediate. The Dharma is immediate. The knowing is now. The choice through mindfulness. If there's no mindfulness, you don't have any choice. But the choice is here and now. Mindful in this moment, having intention that's not based on circumstances. Uh, circumstances affect your goal, but not your intention. The, the intention, the Samasamkapa of the Buddha, is right here and now. Regardless of conditions, I intend to be kind. So you may be uh, doing something with your family. You may be doing something at work. The intention to be kind would not vary on those circumstances. You might be trying to accomplish a certain amount of work in, in your job, and at home you're trying to get your teenager to you know, do homework or whatever it may be. But the intention would not vary. Your intentions or your core values come to the level of an intention. So what we do, we treat, we treat governance as practice. That's a radical change. How well are we doing with this? It varies. It varies, we're learning. It's very difficult to have a, a, a flowing community. It's much more fluid in some ways than, than a regular a corporate environment, and certainly much more fluid than a family. How do we learn to treat governance as, as, uh, as, as practice first and as outcome as second? What I thought would be valuable about you hearing these, these uh, two worlds the world of Spirit Rock, which is in some way uh, 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 created in a different way than the world of Pixar, which has all the deadlines and all this. But let me tell you, Spirit Rock has lots of deadlines, lots of budget worries. We've got a lot of budget worries right now in relation to the construction thing. But to see how two different organizations are applying mindfulness and this, uh, this orientation of learning with the mindfulness to, uh, that's allowed each organization to grow and prosper. And, and uh, certainly in terms here at Spirit Rock, I can say to be a very healthy organization. It's a very healthy place. And we've had our mistakes, and we've had times when we weren't so healthy, where we somehow lost our way, and we had to, uh, uh, to, to uh, look at ourselves very hard and start over. And, uh, Sally, uh, Sally Armstrong is here with me, my co-guiding teacher tonight, 
And Sally and I led a revisioning committee and a review committee before that when we'd sort of lost our way a bit and we had to come back. In the meditation, when you're invited to start over, you're, we've invited you to be with the breath and say, okay, if you, if you wander off the breath, just start over. That seems so simple. Seems like just a little thing, not easy to do. But every time you let loose of your comments, you're judging and you're comparing, and you just start over by returning to the breath, you're reconditioning, you're rewiring your nervous system to have the choice, big word for me these days, choice to not be caught when you've been caught. You just start over. Oh, I'm not doing my values. Oh, I'm such a terrible person. All this, how do la, 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 all this spinning out? No, I'm not being skillful. But I know what skillful is, and my intention is to be skillful. You just start over being skillful. This will work much better in your personal relations rather than trying to defend yourself, right, or alibi or beg forgiveness. Take responsibility and just start over. It is the starting over that will allow us to say, I'm wrong, will you forgive me? I apologize for this. Mindfulness with intention becomes, so, becomes such an empowering pair. It does bring choice. It does allow us to have a kind of freedom that's here and now. And that freedom that's here and now is the same freedom that will ultimately bring these deeper and deeper levels of liberation. So this 360 in our lives of mindfulness, it's, it's the eminence, the wisdom that comes from eminence, what's emanating from our life, as opposed to just thinking at the transcendence. Oh, I want to be completely free, like in the Third Noble Truth. How do you get there? Is the simpleness of, is this moment, am I causing suffering or not? In just this moment, am I causing suffering or not? That's a choice right there. In this moment, am I causing suffering or not? Do I have choice? Maybe I realize I'm causing suffering, but I'm so caught that I can't stop it. Sure, everyone in the room looks old enough to have had that experience more than once. Oh, so that then I will stand under. I will attend to the fact that I am so caught that even knowing I'm causing suffering to myself or another. When we stay present that way, eventually we just can't stand it anymore. The moment self-liberates, we say in the Dharma, that the Dharma does us. We, the scene of the suffering somehow breaks through those deep-seated compulsions that we have, deep-seated mind patterns, habits, this deep-seated conditioning. The clear scene liberates itself. With that larger context in that way, we have time for a few questions here that if you would like to ask Ed some questions. So please, if someone would like to start us with one. And we've got a, a microphone will come around to you if you will wait. So let's move over to here, please, this gentleman to start with. Yeah, thank you both for addressing, I think, something really important. You'd be happy to know, too, one of the um, biggest movements in corporate culture right now is like the Wisdom 2.0 and the mindfulness. I don't know if you're aware of this movement, but it's happening fast and quickly. And Very aware. Started, yeah, I've read it in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. I'm sure you would be aware. <laughs> and, uh, fortunately, it's spreading now. They're doing the you know, same work in India and other places that have had this kind of corporate culture that was so much about process and not about attention to detail. So I want to say that, Ed, I think some of your work and the success you had has spread, and I, I really appreciate hearing what you're saying. hope that it continues to go, and the success of these wisdom conferences, I think, mean a lot to our culture, because it's the type of products that are going to be brought out. In your case, it's movies, other pieces, it's software, or apps, or whatever it is. I think it's important that they have this mindfulness intention, and we're all going to get caught up in process and technology without the, you know, soulfulness and spirit behind it. So I think you've done some good at Pixar and Disney and helping to show how that can help balance things out and bring good products to the world, not just uh, efficient or technically advantageous ones. So thank you for that. Thank you. And we'll go to the, over here to the lady in the back. In the meantime, 
to say that mindfulness, as many of you know, has spread deeply into the school systems, deeply, the lady that, hold up your hand again for him, thank you, deeply into the therapeutic process and uh, more and more into organizational dynamics. So I really appreciate what you've been saying about um, mindfulness in the corporate world and all of that. And um, I'm, a, I'm a teacher, and I have my kids meditate. I teach religion. And um, I'm looking at my own organization, and it's sort of lack of compassion when it's supposed to be a religious institution. But in any case, um, and the way it, anyway, um, the way it's organized, I think maybe what you're saying models more of what our institution should model. However, my skepticism stays in the back of my mind and asks the question, at what point does this mindfulness and attention to maybe kindness, compassion, and all of that conflict with the goals of a corporation? Well, it's, uh, I, I'm very aware that in a lot of corporations, <clears throat> um, there is a drive towards uh, uh, short-term needs. I mean, there are, there are a variety of short-term needs. Um, and, and it's pretty clear in some corporations, and, we've, and, and, and in many cases, it's very damaging because of that. And, and I've had people ask, okay, what do you do in an organization that is like that? And that's one of the toughest questions there, there is. Um, because I don't have a clear answer for that one, um, other than by, which is we all try to do is provide some example. I, I think another difficult one is there are, uh, organizations which ostensibly are well-intended, but because of, of uh, inattention, attention to fear and the things that get in the way, they end up behaving in ways which run counter to what you would think. And a lot of schools are this way, that because of, of the bureaucracy or the expectations or legislative requirements and so forth, that things are put in place around the schools which actually uh, aren't the best thing for the child. It's almost as if the various vested groups have, have got powers behind them except that who represents the child themselves. Um, and, 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 and I, as I said, I've seen a range of organizations like that. The notion of mind, mindfulness um, as it spreads I, is, is one of those healthy things, although I think we're all aware of the fact that if it's perceived of as just a way of having people relax at, at work and so forth, it, 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 it becomes shallow. And uh, and I don't, th and, but I but I think for most people who are trying to drive it, they don't mean the shallow side of that. That there is there's the depth, and that's what we want to come out of. That. That's what we're pushing for. Uh, so when 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 people are in organizations where they've got problems or issues like that. Um, uh, my, my hope is that the individuals as a whole get together at some point, do make some breakthrough. A, a lot of organizations do change. Uh, they don't change quickly. Uh, it is easier to put in place obstacles than to put in place uh, things that help. Um, I mean, as an example, if you were to ask an audience in general, what can they do to make people more creative, then only a handful of people, handful of people, would raise their hands with suggestions. But if you were to ask, what are, are the things you can do to put in place barriers, or how to make people feel bad, or, or in their place, or insecure, then like everybody would raise their hands because they see it all the time. Um, and and that's really what we're trying to address. And I, but I also think it's where, in some respects, the easy pickings are: is that people are focused. They say, how do you make somebody behave right or, or be creative, then it's kind of an easy thing to state. But our problem isn't how do we get to do that. Our problem is what, what are the things that are getting in our way? What are the emotional or the, or the behaviors or the fears that are getting in the way? And if we can bring ourselves to focus on those, then we're more likely to affect the organization because those are the, are, the, are the real things that are there. Otherwise, if we just talk about the positive side, then what happens is people repeat the positive words and not change their behavior. And what we want is a change of behavior and removal of fear 
and an increase of trust. A, a easy to say, but hard to do. Thank you for that. Uh, someone, uh, someone here have their hand up? Yes, the gentleman all the way back over there. Just hold you up your hand again, if you will, please. Thank you. So just remind you again what I said earlier is that samasati, right or wise mindfulness, always has this ethical component and has this, this intentionality in all the parts of the Eightfold Path. So a lot of mindfulness that gets banded around in the world, this superficial kind of mindfulness, would not be what we mean by mindfulness. That would not be what the Buddha was teaching. Mindfulness, just being aware of what's happening, is an amoral kind of skill. But the, 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 the mindfulness of the Buddha is heavily morality-based. And, and with a lot of generosity. So this is, this is important. And this the other little thing before you speak. If in your situation, start with a few people. Start with a few people that are like-minded people and hold, the, hold your value and just see with holding your value in this mindful way, just see how uh, the repercussions around you. Sometimes that alone is enough to bump a, a, a change in the culture. It can be very modest at the beginning. So please, your question. Yeah, uh, thank you, Edward. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, when we say meditation here at Spirit Rock, we usually put the word insight in front of it. And um, I wonder, when, when you first began, it was really lovely, you, you talked about being lost. And uh, because you're obviously a very successful man, we all know about Pixar, there was something very poignant about that. But from there, you went on to talk about organizational problems and uh, uh, tactics and strategies to make life better and more uh, artful, I suppose, and so on and so forth. What I wanted to ask you is, is this. Along the way, Edward, can you share with us an insight? Uh, I never mean something light. A, a genuine insight, uh, the kind that, that Govinda has when he looks in the face of Siddhartha at the very end of that book. Uh, something, why not, deep? And personal. Uh, those are the things that I think jumpstart revelation. And revelation is necessary, it seems to me, in this. Otherwise, we're doing a lot of applying. We're sitting, we're meditating, we're doing classes, we're repeating, and all to the good. But I should think a single insight would be very valuable for anyone on this path. I know when I was 35, I had one. It was very simple. I won't share it now, but believe me, it has stayed with me for nearly 40 years. Uh, Thank you. So three minutes for an insight here. <laughs> I, and I, I understand what you're saying there, and of course, I being in a company, I have to be careful about the kinds of things I do within that, that group because we, we have these differences um, in terms of our motivations and why we're doing things. Um, my, my own feeling as I went through this at the time uh, was, was to try to understand some of the things that are hidden and, and mysterious. And I don't usually use the term mysterious. But I've thought a lot about the things that I can't see and what it means to operate in a world in most of the things are not accessible to me. Um, I tried, to be honest, to write them down in some depth. And, uh, and I found, first of all, it was, it was rewarding for me to try to write them down. But I also found that they were somewhat inaccessible, and that uh, in, in general, people preferred to jump directly to the insight. And, and as I looked at other people's insights, and they, got, and they coalesced into a single saying, that the sayings then became separated from the underlying meaning. And if you look at most of the wisdom of the ages, that uh, at, at one level, everybody says it's true, but 
but it keeps getting discovered over and over again because the, the fact that it's easy to say doesn't mean it's easy to understand. And that saying sometimes, or the, 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 the wisdom or the, um, uh, the distillation of it into something short uh, actually allows one to think that they've gotten the insight without having gone through it. I don't know how to describe, frankly, all the things. I feel like I'm in a different place. Um, and, uh, but I can't distill it into a single thing. I can only say I went through a path with a certain set of goals. I found an alignment and a learning from, from using the, uh, uh, the, 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 the structure and the way of thinking that have been developed in this community over the many years that have been very valuable to me. But in truth, I don't know how to distill it into a short thing, just a path, but a path I believe in. Thank you. So, too, uh, we're going to have to stop with that because of our time here. So, uh, insight, insight is not something that you can practice. We, this is Vipassana. It is insight meditation. What we do is we create the conditions from which insight arises. So you can't say, oh, I'm going to go out and have an insight. But as you, as you really apply yourself to your practice, you have insights. Sometimes this is a personal insight, like a psychological insight, and sometimes it is about the nature of reality as the Buddha is pointing out. And they, they, they both come in their own way, in their own form. And as the gentleman said, when we have a deep-seated insight, it can guide us for the rest of our lives. So now we're, we're going to close our eyes and to go into our closing time. Coming back into the body. Notice what's true in the belly. If the intuitive body, your intuition, was there in the belly area, what would your intuition have you reflect on from this evening? Now moving on to the heart space. What would the wisdom of your heart have you reflect on, to know, to open to, to affirm? Now going on to the head center, where we have all of our views and opinions, where that chattering voice is always wanting to offer its two cents worth. Very useful, this head center. What would it have you know, reflect on, remember, inquire? Letting loose of this examination, we just be for a moment, just be here, not even exactly meditating, just be.
as we each become a learning community within ourselves. May what we learn be a benefit to our loved ones, be a benefit to everyone with whom we come in contact. Any merit that's arisen from our practice this evening, we offer that merit to the benefit of all beings, those we know, those we don't know, those we approve of, those we don't approve of. May all beings find an ease to their suffering. May all beings learn.